Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You are listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative editor with Adweek, uh, and I am joined by my co-host, Sammy Main, our social editor. Sammy, always great to have you on. Hello. I was going to say good morning for some reason because like the day's starting, the podcast is starting, the birds are chirping somewhere, not in New York. It's a great day to podcast. No, it's like we live in this on-demand audio culture where we can't give away anything about the timing. (laughs) It's like we want people to think that we're speaking to them in real time (laughs) no matter where. Good morning, afternoon, (laughs) evening, (laughs) insert time of day here. (laughs) We've also got back uh, Patrick Coffey, our agency's editor at Adweek. Patrick, always great to have you, and we have a lot for you to talk about today. Thank you, David. And yes, we do. All right. So we will get into it. But first, I mean, there's always time for self-promotion. I just wanted to mention that we won an award uh, in the last few days. Uh, We just found out the day before we're recording this, but we won... um, the Best Podcast Award from the Folio Awards, which is publishing industry honor. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just meant a lot to us. It was a, uh, you know, we obviously hoped we would win. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they are focused on kind of the B2B industry. Uh, but uh, just wanted to take this moment to thank everyone. This has been a very huge group project. Uh, you know, the two of you, Sammy and Patrick, have been really uh, vital and have been on very frequently. I've been a big part of it. We've also got a ton of people behind the scenes, uh, like our producers, uh, Christine. Christina Monlos and Anya Fernando, uh, and tons of editors, Lane, uh, who has been our, our awesome editor for quite a while now. So anyway, tons of people that you may or may not ever hear called out in the credits, uh, but it, it, really proud to get that honor. So uh, thank you to the Folio Awards for the honor, and thank you to everyone who's pitched in on the podcast. And now, uh, let's get to the news. All right. Uh, it was one of those where I was having trouble even deciding where to start. It has been like the newsiest week. Um, Let's start with the most powerful man in advertising, Uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, or Sorrell, really depends on who you're talking to on how to pronounce it. He is under investigation for allegations of, uh, I guess, financial misconduct. It's also been called personal misconduct. Uh, 
And they're being understandably vague. Uh, he is he is the uh, CEO of and founder of WPP, the largest holding company in advertising. Uh, but I guess, Patrick, tell us what we do know about what he's accused of doing. Well, uh, essentially, we have to credit the Wall Street Journal here for breaking the story. And the way that they framed it was that he's been accused of two separate violations. One is the misuse of company funds, and one is the much vague, much vaguer personal misconduct. And um, in the statement that WPP provided to us, they were, as you, as you noted, not too specific. Um, they essentially said they, they did repeat the personal misconduct phrase, and then they stated that uh, these concerns do not involve amounts that are material to WPP, which you can kind of read as, oh, it's just a small amount of money that we're talking about here. And it's not clear really from the reports as to how he is accused of misusing these funds, but um, it is clear that that is part of the accusation. But the personal element is uh, sort of adds another dimension to it as there's a lot of speculation as to what exactly that means. Yeah, and it reminded me a bit um, of, whoa, I guess 2015, uh, the MDC, another holding company in advertising, their founder, uh, Miles Nadal, uh, ended up having to pay his company back $21 million. That's right. Uh, because, uh, yeah, he had several, and I I have to admit, I don't have the exact stories in front of me, but it, it's things like misusing yachts or it wasn't our private planes private it was basically ha- yeah it was like how yep. he was using uh, i think he lived on a yacht i think is, is what i'm remembering that um but it anyway was, so that yeah, not to say that that's what's exorbitant happening exorbitant living <laughs> yeah not to say that that's what uh, martin sorrell is accused of but you know that was a somewhat similar uh, incident uh now this does not come at a great time for wpp otherwise uh they've had struggles of kind of all manner in the end everything's financial i suppose but they've they've certainly had a rough year financially uh sorrel took a, a pay cut himself last year uh in your story you note that uh, he got a bonus of 14 million which i would love to have a bonus of 14 million but <laughs> Most if your previous would. yeah if your previous bonus was 58.5 million eh, you know that's a bit of a drop uh it's worth so noting it, but, that it's the investors really who are taking issue with his salary. Yeah, yeah. It's been a point of contention for several years now. Um, Pretty much every time he spoke anywhere, someone wanted to talk about his compensation packages. Uh, But tell us, in general, the big picture of of what WPP has been struggling with lately. There's been some client loss uh, definitely as a big part of that, right, Patrick? Yes, uh, there has. And there are a lot of big counts currently in review, like uh, Kimberly Clark. But the big move really is that Media agents have, agencies have been the big source of um, money for WPP recently. And the world's biggest advertisers like P&G, like Unilever, have said that they are going to cut their spending, essentially because a lot of it, especially on the digital side, they feel is not effective. Um, P&G's Mark Pritchard has been very public about this, but this is a big hit to the revenues of companies like WPP because they make so much of their money not by creating ads but by placing them. 
Yeah, any anytime you say uh, kind of you you know just across the board that you are going to be cutting how you spend money on advertising, that means you are going to be cutting how how you spend money with companies like WPP. I mean, they are advertising. Uh, they own agencies at every level: creative, media, digital, uh, all of it, uh, consulting. Uh, so they they certainly are a bellwether for the industry as a whole. Their stock price takes a hit basically anytime anything gets questionable in the advertising industry. Uh, so that's certainly part of it. What do we know? So this company exists because of Sir Martin Sorrell. He he bought uh, his wire package products uh, and he bought it intentionally as a shell company just to uh, just to well I don't know if shell company is the right word but you know as a a company to use to acquire ad agencies uh, as a trick he had learned I believe with Saatchi and Saatchi and then he built this empire uh, that is WPP. So it is very synonymous uh, with Sir Martin. Uh, do we know anything about the succession plans if if he leaves for any reason? That's true. You're right. They don't have any public succession plans. Um, There has been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of reviewing the board of directors and seeing who might possibly replace him. I know that uh, two names that are frequently floated are CEO Mark Reed of Wonderman and CEO Eric Salama of Kantar, primarily because they are two of the more successful entities within WPP, I believe. But again, this is pure speculation, and um, Sir Martin has been very public about his desire to stay where he is. He <laughs> yeah. is. Uh, it's interesting that a Wall Street Journal follow-up said that this was sort of an unusual degree of public scrutiny into him because he is the face of WPP. He's the face of advertising, really. He goes on CNBC all the time, and yet... We haven't really looked underneath the hood. Well, I have to admit that uh, I have a minor grudge with Sir Martin separate from anything. It's really just because I had an interview scheduled with him once at Cannes, and he had to cancel it uh, because he was meeting with Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Well, I mean, whom among us hasn't had to shift their schedule around for Kim Kardashian? (laughs) It's very relatable. The the best part was that as I – they kept telling me he's got a last-minute – uh, meeting and he may have to cancel, but come on over and we'll try to squeeze you in. And so as I'm like waiting to in this cramped little room to get into hit the suite in in this hotel where he was, uh, you know, where he was stationed that day, like Kim Kardashian comes around the corner and just like squeezes past me. And I was like, well, that can't be Kim Kardashian because she would have like a hundred people with her, right? Like she doesn't travel alone. And then and then right behind her comes this squadron of handlers <laughs> uh-huh. and security and Chloe and like I was just my brain couldn't even process what was happening. And then I ran into uh, Sir Martin that night uh and I was basically just like, Did you stand me up for Kim Kardashian? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't actually have a grudge, but uh, it, the let's stay on the WPP topic because they were also uh, a big part of the other big story of the week, which is that they settled a two-year running lawsuit filed by JWT, one of the agencies they own, one of their larger, more distinguished agencies, uh, was sued by its own uh, global communications chief, Aaron Johnson, two years ago. The uh, lawsuit basically targeted JWT CEO uh, Gustavo Martinez, the global CEO, who uh, they at first, uh, Patrick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they kind of denied everything at first and said, we stand behind the CEO. And then shortly after, he resigned and, and took on kind of a much quieter post within WPP, correct? Yes, that's correct. They stood behind him for about a week. 
and then he resigned. Um, he was replaced by Tamara Ingram, who is currently global CEO of JWT, which is supposedly the oldest ad agency in the world, by the way. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so let's remind us uh, just in brief about the nature of the of the allegations. Uh, I, I certainly remember some of the more volatile things he was accused yes. of saying. Se- several jokes about rape. Um, yes. And I and yeah. Jokes so, about so tell rape, us a little. Um, racist comments, anti-Semitic comments. He um, refer- referred to the head of PR at McCann as that Jew from McCann. Yeah. Which is one that we hear uh, a lot, uh, and, and then just all kinds of just uh, the accusations were very extreme. Yeah, it and, was and undermining her, undermining other employees, um, all of the bad stuff that maybe yeah, there could ever be. Yeah, <laughs> people initially I, I mean, said they were shocked by this. You know, his former colleagues said, you know, we had never seen him behave in this way, uh, and he denied all of it except the parts that were on tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that was, you cool. know, when the tape tape came out and you could just see this was a bit of a trap maybe that Aaron's legal team even laid not to I believe uh, that it was. Yeah, where they basically had all these allegations and he denied everything including one where he had made a joke about um, where he said, uh, I was almost raped last night and not in the good way. Right. And he's talking about uh, about a hotel and being in a bad part of town or something. And he denied that. And then they were like, oh, yeah, here's the video. <laughs> well, he also denied the anti-Semitic comments. And then the uh, editor of Campaign Magazine, Douglas uh, Quinqua, recalled an incident in which Gustavo said that himself and his wife had to move out of Westchester, New York, because it had, quote unquote, too many Jews. Yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, definitely what what was the reason that this one has been such an interesting case uh, beyond just kind of the extremity of what he was accused of uh, and the fact that it was filed by their own PR chief, which is not something you see every day. Uh, this came quite a bit, at least a year, if not more, before the Me Too movement really began, before it Harvey did. Weinstein. We're going to talk about that quite at length in a few minutes when we get to kind of our big discussion of the week. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's there's it's so fascinating to think about how differently this case would be received and maybe even handled by the agency if it happened now. Um, but uh, but before we get to that bigger discussion, well, what do we know about the settlement? Anything? We usually don't get many details in these situations. Well, of course, you know, none of the parties were willing to discuss on the record, but um, I do have reason to believe that it was a significant settlement. And I think that uh, ultimately it cost WPP a lot of money, not just in terms of the money that they paid to Aaron Johnson, but that they paid their own lawyers and the really immeasurable cost of all the bad PR that they got. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit, too, about um, the the status of their employment. Uh, so I, I think it's also yes. not- noteworthy that uh, Gustavo Martinez remains employed by WPP in this kind of uh, role. I think he's from Spain. He's been serving in Spain in this role. I've, I've had sources within uh, that the WPP family kind of tell me, yeah, this is not an important role. This is basically, uh, not to put words in their mouth, but they're saying this this is kind of where you put people when you don't want them really doing much of right. anything else. Right. Um, and uh, but Erin is is gone, right? So so she her is. leaving the company seems to have been a condition of this. That feels like that's not going to sit well with a lot of people when you say like we're going to hang on to the guy accused of doing this, but we're getting rid of the person who brought up the accusation. 
Well, it makes you think, I mean, given how much money he cost them, why are they retaining him after all of this? And there's been a lot of back and forth, and it was between the legal teams as well, in terms of WPP not being willing to disclose exactly what he's doing. Um, We uh, initially reported on him making public appearances in Spain on behalf of WPP's operations in that country and him um, making statements to the effect that he was helping them reorganize their operations throughout Spain. And there were, the legal teams were arguing that he was the, quote, country manager for WPP Spain. And if you look at their uh, web pages, et cetera, they, they do have regional and country managers, and there's none currently listed for Spain. And their spokesperson denied to me directly that he has that role, but uh, on his own LinkedIn page, he identifies himself as country representative for WPP Spain. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was about to say I saw his LinkedIn the other day, and yeah, <laughs> it was right on there. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, like I said, we will be talking about this case a bit more in a minute, uh, but definitely check out Adweek.com. Uh, keep a close eye on our agencies uh, tab at the top. You can catch up on these stories and just generally keep an eye out on Patrick's coverage and the coverage coming out of his team. Really great stuff and a lot of big news affecting the industry, but. Now, it's time for a little lighter fare. Let's take a little breather in the middle of an otherwise somewhat heavy episode. <laughs> Let's talk about ads worth watching. All right, this week, I uh, wanted to feature one that's uh, not quite a video, although there was a video case study behind it. Um, but it was largely an Instagram campaign, and it's called Two Later Graham. So Later Graham, of course, being photos you post on Instagram after the fact. Uh, and uh, so maybe the day after you post something. These, I, I, you know, I thought that was a really clever name to Latergram for this is a World Wildlife Fund campaign with TBWA Paris. Uh, they partnered with nine different influencers on Instagram. And basically what they did is they they took, it's, it's kind of an interesting approach. They took photos of ugly uh, sites around the world, places that have been devastated by industry and pollution uh, and, you know, just uh, kind of all the usual or, uh, you know, human impact on nature. They took photos of these locations and then photoshopped them to look beautiful. Uh, so they took out all the trash and they took out the strip mining and they took out all the, you know, pollution and everything. Uh, and then they had these influencers who are travel uh, influencers on, on Instagram uh, all over the world. They're not just French, although quite a few were. This was a French campaign. And they had them post it and uh, and kind of say, oh, look at this lovely place I am in, you know, in Guyana or uh, in the South Pacific. And and of course, you get all these same kind of comments uh, that you always see on, you know, Instagram travel, right? Travel photographers is, oh, you're so lucky. Oh, I wish <laughs> I could be there. Oh, it's, it's so great. Lucky you. Uh, and then they were like, well, boom guess what? It doesn't exist. And they would post the follow-up image, which was the real photo of what that location looks like. Uh, Some were a little more transparent than others. A lot of them, I don't think, wanted to be seen as deceiving their followers. So they posted them as galleries, which I thought was quite effective. Um, That's what it's called, right, Sammy? A gallery where you have like, you can swipe 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 between images. Yeah, multiple photos. And so you would see the, the pretty one and then you'd swipe. And so the caption, of course, was universal to both like, you know, just think 
uh, how much you know had destruction has been caused, how much we could prevent. Uh, think about the places that are still pristine and why it's important to protect them. I like uh, that other... this is our lighter fare in the middle of the heavy <laughs> episode is the destruction of Earth. That's fun. Yeah, it was really just about the unstoppable, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just kind of... Uh, Wave of it, human it, trash that we forced yeah. upon this beautiful planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah creeping apocalypse of uh, global warming. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so, you know, but man, it was, sure was fun the way sure they did pretty. it. Sure was pretty. Well, so, given yeah. all the positive news about the Environmental Protection Agency this week, I, I feel pretty good about the future. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's the future's bright and not for long, so <laughs> we're almost there, guys. I always think about there was this New Yorker cartoon of like the guy in a business suit sitting by a fire in an apocalyptic wasteland. He's like, yeah, but for a few good years there, we created so much value. (laughs) 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 I think he even says like for our brand. but anyway, so these uh, – and then some some of these in- Instagram posts were without context. They were like, just look at this, and don't you wish you could go there? And then they would follow up with another post. And people would even say, of course I want to go there, like mm-hmm. setting them setting them up perfectly. And then the follow-up post was like, well, you, you probably shouldn't because it's just <laughs> filled with hypodermic needles. <laughs> I don't know, like uh, – but uh, a really fun campaign. TBWA, uh, you know, they were very proud of the universality of this, of the photography, yeah. of the message. It really doesn't matter what language you speak. You can kind of understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Sammy, I'm, always, I'm obviously really curious, as our social editor, what you thought of this campaign. I I mean, I really appreciate it. My minor degree from college was in sustainability studies, and my major was journalism. So my 101s of both of those classes were like, A, print is dying. B, earth is dying. <laughs> Uh, like I remember in one of my introductory classes, they told us that we would need four earths in order to keep living at like the rate we're using this one earth. We don't got those. Uh, so I kind of always appreciate a socially minded campaign like this, especially one where I don't mind a bit of trickery. Like even if I was an influencer, it's a real problem. Like, yeah, we can always go to these beautiful places, but not forever because, like, look at how we're trashing our planet. Um, So from a social perspective, I definitely understand influencers maybe being cautious about, you know, not wanting to lose followers over something like that if they got mad (laughs) that this place, you know, was actually uh, terrible and, uh, you know, unrealistic. Um, but I think it's super important work for, for people of that type of, of influence, especially to kind of show the reality of things. Not everything is always Instagram perfect. And in fact, it, uh, usually isn't. Um, so I appreciate it from, um, on a lot of levels. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like it highlights a bigger issue. Maybe this is kind of a negative about Instagrammers is that you'll see all their photos of like scuba diving and touring ruins and, you know, Mm. a palace or whatever. And you're like, yeah, but you had to drive through abject poverty to get there. Like, sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some are more, you know, journalistic about it than others. Right. But, but any of us who travel, you know that that's the reality is that for every beautiful thing you see, you see just... Again, not to drag it down. This is supposed to be the bright part of the show. <laughs> yeah, like, well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like the toll of human suffering and the guilt that we feel as tourists and travelers mm-hmm. um, when we go to these places. It's like we are, on the one hand, we're providing money as tourists uh, right. for for these destinations. But, man, the iniquity that you see mm. of, you know, the imbalance is so, is so, for me, maybe it's just my white liberal guilt, but, like, it's... Uh, <laughs> 
it's pretty heavy. And so anyway, I, I have always kind of looked a bit askance at, at Instagram influencers. So it was nice to see them acknowledging that these, because yeah. these are real, these are real places and they're in countries you might visit. You're just not going to mm-hmm. go there. It's like right. you may go to Cuba, but you're not going to go to Muriel Bay, which yeah. you know, is, is what Muriel Hemingway, uh, he, you know, Hemingway's daughter was named after. And it is a polluted, just industrial grossness. And there was a great documentary where she's like crying, looking at it mm. because she toured, it was called My Father's Hemingway, or My Father's Cuba. And she's just literally crying, like, my dad named me after this because it was so beautiful, and look what's happened to it. Yeah. And so that's, that's the reality is that you kind of cherry-pick this stuff when you travel anyway. So I'm glad I could boost everyone's spirits. I mean, and- they're so pretty. Like, uh, Instagram, lo- I love it. What a good life everyone's living. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough bright happiness. Let's move on to our, our big discussion of the week. All right, well, we've got two big uh, packages. I can't even call them stories. They're so big in scope. Uh, Patrick, as the agency's editor, was the lead editor on these. But I did want to point out, in case anyone thinks it's weird, like two dudes and Sammy, of course, talking about this. Uh, man, there were a lot of people involved in this. And the Adweek uh, news team is is gender balanced, which I'm tremendously proud of. Uh, but a lot of women contributed to this. We just only have so many microphones. They did. <laughs> and, they did. <laughs> on the Can't editorial side, on the art side, it was really a collaborative effort. So I did just want to throw that out so people just wouldn't, didn't think it was just uh, you know Patrick handling all this, although he certainly shepherded this. And I think uh, to Patrick's uh, credit especially is that he has really developed a fantastic uh, standing within the industry as being someone that you can go to, you can trust with your, you know, with your secrets and what you're going through and has really become kind of the go-to person for people within the industry uh, who have concerns and they may not be ready to go public with it yet. And so uh, I think that says a lot about, uh, about your professionalism and your, you know, Ability to see both sides of, of these issues. So with that, uh, I want to dive in. We have one that's um, basically about the Me Too movement uh, coming to Madison Avenue, which did not happen as fast as I think some people might have expected it would. Certainly uh, slower than I expected it would after the Harvey Weinstein came up and uh, you know stuff came up because these were stories that. We as journalists, we hear, but people aren't willing to go forward. And no matter how hard we press, we can't make people talk about some of this stuff as much as we might like to. That has certainly changed in the last year. Uh, So let's talk first just to revisit the Aaron Johnson lawsuit against JWT that we talked about in the news portion. Patrick, do you think that would be different if it happened now versus two years ago? I personally believe that it would. And this is pure speculation on my part, but... A common refrain in the industry is Martin never settles. And obviously he settled. So I think that if she had filed her suit 18 months later than she did, they would have settled sooner, simply due to greater public pressure. Obviously, as I said before, that's my opinion, but I I do believe that it's true. Well, it, it, you know, I think the other issue is that to be, I guess, the most generous is to say that maybe they would have handled her complaints different. You know? One would hope <laughs> like, so. It wouldn't have come to this if it, the, the undertone of her allegations, although we don't know the specifics of what really happened, but the undertone is certainly that they didn't take these allegations seriously enough uh, to warrant. And that's something we saw repeatedly, right, with several cases that year. It is true. Uh, that that was the recurring theme is that they, these turned into lawsuits. Uh, this is not an overly litigious society kind of situation. This is like people who tried to go through the correct channels and, you know, 
these CEOs stay in power and nothing changes until you sue them and then suddenly they're gone and everything changes. And that sets a precedent that that's what it takes to get these things done. Um, Well, it does and it doesn't. I mean, even within this story, there are at least three examples of men who were sued for sexual harassment. Their employer settled and they remained employed. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, So let's talk about this story. Uh, I'm curious what kind of recurring themes you saw. You talked to a lot of women, some on the record, some off the record, who've been in this industry for quite a while. Let's talk about that gap between, uh, you know, Aaron Johnson two years ago and and when the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And as that all came together, there was still a lag time, right, before it really this wave seemed to hit advertising. There was. It was really about two months because Harvey Weinstein broke in October and well it was even it was a little less than 2 months really but uh Harvey Weinstein broke in early October and in early December chief creative officer Joe Alexander was fired from the Martin agency and that was really the uh the first one that's the start of the wave so to speak and, and so did the women you talked to uh, who've been in this industry for a while, what was their take on, on how this movement has come to advertising? And I guess first let's talk about why it hasn't happened before. Why did it take so long uh, for, you know, for these allegations to be taken seriously? Well, it was really just the way that the industry has traditionally been structured, which was that the positions of power were all held by men. And uh, while there were plenty of female employees, uh, they were, the stereotypes are true, they were largely seen as eye candy or, as one source told me, accessories. Um, They were certainly involved in the operations, but they were seen as being unable to facilitate business deals and operations, et cetera, as effectively as men. This is just, I mean, I think a big takeaway really is that sexism is not a relic of the Mad Men era. You know, I had someone say to me sort of a few months ago before this really, really started going that it was bad in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, but we're past that now. The bad eggs are gone. And that obviously turned out not to be true. Yeah, yeah. But and I, I, think, I think the the overt sexism may have gone away. It's like once people realize that, uh, you know, politically and uh, and you know, just in terms of your image, that you can't go around saying these things. But the the nature of the allegations that we've been hearing is that you had people. I had a I had a conversation. I'm actually I don't think you and I have talked about this. I was talking to an agency leader recently, a, a female agency executive. And I said uh, that I really feel like the role of the creative director, you hear a lot of creative directors um, or executive creative director, or, you know, are, are in these allegations and are at the center of it a lot of time. I feel like the very nature of that job kind of lends itself to abuse of power yes. um, because this is someone who you can have the best, most forward thinking copywriters, art directors, uh, and that that aspect of the industry is probably a lot better gender balanced than anything higher than that. But they bring their ideas to this creative director, and that's the person who enforces and who kills ideas and who 
puts in new ones and says, this is what's going to go out the door, or this is what's going to be decided. They also have an insane amount of control over your career, no matter who you are. Even if you don't work for them, a creative director, if you're on the bad side of a creative director, you are screwed at an agency. Uh, and so that's just an insane amount of power to be put in one person. And I think, again, the nature of the job kind of lended itself to, let's just say, douches. <laughs> like, I mean, the kind of people who did well because they were so opinionated and, and kind of busting in on these, they, you know, stood behind their ideas really hard and, and uh, tough in the room. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of can often be jerks uh, <laughs> is the stereotype. I don't know. What do you think of that? Is, is that a fair criticism on my part? Well, I think it's it's both a stereotype and it's also true. And this is something that we touched on in the piece. Um, there was a quote that I really like from a male chief creative officer who said, it's time to stop tolerating the bullshit of genius, which is essentially oh, holding that. God. Oh, my God. That's the running theme throughout all of these. I mean, we keep using the Me Too movement like very gratuitously, I think. I think that's a handy hashtag that came about to like finally facilitate this conversation. Uh, throughout comedy, throughout media, it's always those kooky, genius, smart guys who happen to get all the way to the top and just abuse people the entire time. Yes. I mean, and part of it is a legitimate concern that, hey, this guy is sort of the spokesperson for our agency. And if we suddenly have to tell the client, oh, well, he's no longer with us, then are we going to lose that business? So I think that some of that was a legitimate concern, but part of it was also just the as as you mentioned, David, the disproportionate amount of power granted to people like this. I mean, they are essentially the equivalents of the Matt Lowers of the agency world, the people who can kind of do whatever they want, and they've been allowed to get away with it for a long, long time. And the way that the agency world is structured in particular, it's very open. You know, you have people who are like-minded people who are essentially paid to be quirky, who are paid to be hip, who are paid to be up on all the latest trends, and they spend lots of time in close quarters together. And that facilitates not only, you know, consensual affairs, but also blatant abuses of power and harassment, which is what has been popping up more and more often. And I, I think that it's not that this is a new thing. Certainly. It's just that a lot of women now feel, if not safer, then at least um, more ready to come forward about the experience that they have had. Now, yeah, and there, it reminded me, this conversation reminds me, and Sammy's point, of the, the Time's Up advertising letter that was signed by 180 women uh, in leadership and advertising uh, that we covered recently, we talked about here on the show. Uh, I don't think I quoted this exact line in there, but it has stuck with me. I keep thinking about it. Uh, and it says, sexual harassment is not okay. Never. No exceptions. No amount of talent, missed cues, or being great in the room unchecks the no sexual harassment right. box. That's exactly that last, what they're talking about. Yeah, that last line may not mean much to people outside of advertising, the being great in the room and, you know, but and the but that really is what this is. It's just like the people are like, yeah, I mean, he's a dick and he's grabastic with, you know, all the interns, but, you know, he sure can run the room when we have a pitch. Uh, 
You know, and that's that's the sad reality. To be to be clear, I've never heard someone literally say those lines, but that's you know a summary of kind of the way we've heard some of this described. Sammy, I, I'm curious from the social media perspective as well. It feels like that has really the, me too as a hashtag as something that has solidified a social media conversation around mm-hmm. this has really changed the dynamic for these companies. Like again, going back two years, like they can't if if word gets around that you've got an executive who is showing this kind of pattern of behavior, uh, social media, you, you will get torn apart uh, a lot more so, and, a lot, and you'll be much more at the center of the discussion than, again, than a year ago even. I mean, yeah, that's that's the risk bad people live with now, I guess, is that we're not <laughs> afraid to talk about it anymore. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't know. I have so many mixed feelings about all of this because so much of it is like, yeah, it is about time. And yeah, it's been happening forever. And yeah, we've like all experienced different levels of it. And now there is like we've removed at least a couple layers of caution or, you know, uh, being afraid of of consequences and that sort of thing. I I think it is a lot more freer now and we're a lot more angry and we're a lot more together. And so I do think it it has made it into a movement. I just, um, my earlier comment might have sounded snippy because it sounds like uh, marketers and PR folk are already trying to spin like the Me Too movement for so and so, and it's like, oh, okay, can we not sell things based on human pain for like a minute? Nope, cool, can't <laughs> wait on that one. So I, I don't like quite how it's been co-opted necessarily in order to like you know show that a brand is cool or woke or aware of social issues. And mostly, I just hope it continues to bring women together in you know. Uh, a safe and secure and supported way. And like, at least we'll have each other's backs, if not the actual company you work for. And it's also worth noting that the origins of the phrase itself have kind of been lost. When Mm -hmm. I was interviewing um, Carol H. Williams, who is a legendary African-American creative director about her experience, she noted to me that the Me Too hashtag was, was first used in 2006 by Tarana Burke, and it was specifically for women of color who had survived sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and speaking of you know, origins that get forgotten sometimes, too, uh, when we talked about the how much of this problem is centered around the creative director role, the 3% conference, that name, uh, you know, people describe it in a few different ways of what the 3% is, but it was actually the 3% of creative, creative directors, directors at the time were, uh, were women. And that number has gotten better. What is it now? Like 11? Yeah, <laughs> 11 I think it's, it's like, low, low double digits. Yeah. It's, it's nice. also worth noting that, that the role of the chief creative officer is changing within the business. I mean, just, and this was like two or three weeks ago, JWT of all agencies announced that it would be eliminating the global CCO position. And I think that a lot of it was because people kind of, they have very high salaries and there's a question as to how much value they're really delivering to agencies and their clients because a lot of times these guys, um, and a lot of them do very valuable work, obviously, but they spend a lot of time flying around the world, um, meeting with different clients, visiting different offices in different countries. And they're, they never touch the work itself, really. Well, we could uh, talk about this all day and 
honestly, a lot of times we end up do talk about this for a long time, but a uh, podcast, we don't have too much more time. But I did want to touch on the other story that we've got uh, in this week's issue, uh, which is uh, about kind of the, the story of, of women who were trailblazers in advertising. And some are names you know. Uh, if you're an advertising wonk, at least uh, Linda Kaplan-Thaler and, and a few of the other names that are going to kind of jump out is, oh, yeah, that's a famous executive uh, who was a trailblazing woman. But a lot of the names uh, are are new to us. Patrick, you wrote several of these blurbs. Uh, were there any that uh, any of these women that you were really kind of fascinated to learn more about? Yes. I mean, Carol H. Williams was was just amazing to me, just talking to her about her experience. I mean, she was... She joined Leo Burnett in 1971 via an internship, and she told me that she was one of maybe four black women there at the time, and she was the only one that lasted, and uh, she did so, she says, you know, based on the strength of her work. I mean, she's best known for creating the secret strong enough for a man but made for a woman campaign, Mm. and she described her philosophy to me as if you don't have a seat at the table, then pull yourself up a seat and sit down at the table. And um, that, that really worked for her. And, you know, you think of the mid seventies as being a time of excess, a time that would probably be especially bad for women of color to make it in an industry dominated by white guys, but she did it. And uh, not only did she do it, she became the first black woman named vice president and creative director at any agency, but then she decided to basically drop it all and launch her own business. And uh, she did that in 1986, and her agency, which is called Carol H. Williams Advertising, went on to make um, campaigns for big clients like Disney, like Ford, like the U.S. Army. And um, while they are often categorized as a multicultural agency, which is kind of an unfortunate way that the industry sort of um, separates agencies from one another, they are still hugely influential. And a a lot of people see her as just really breaking ground, um, especially for creative women of color. And I, I brought up uh, Linda Kaplan Thaler, uh, who again is is this kind of legendary icon. She's retired now, but you still, you know, she still pops up. Uh, but similarly to what you were just describing, you know, she formed the Kaplan Thaler Group as a women-led agency. And I loved her quote in our story, where she says uh, she wanted to get away from the endless alpha male attitude <laughs> of advertising, <laughs> which is obviously right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about. They went on to create the Aflac Duck and uh, several other. Uh, campaigns uh, that a lot of people would know. But, you know, part of me reading that, reading about Carol Williams and and all the people who have broken off from agencies to start, whether it's a Hispanic agency or a women-owned agency or minority agencies, a lot of them were driven to that, not by so much necessarily their own desire to do so as the fact that it was a huge gap, right? And that they couldn't carve out that stuff at the agencies they were with, it just feels like such a such a missed opportunity. If those agencies had done a better job curating that diversity of talent early on, man, what a difference the major agency, you know, how different the agency world, and it might have headed off, maybe I'm being super rosy, it might have headed off some of the problems we're talking about. If you just like, Well, that's what they say about like uh, with all of the entertainment industry too, is because of how hard you're making 
women and people who identify as women work to just stay in a crappy situation when you could be letting them flourish with their own great ideas and instead they have to work, you know, so many times harder in order to be pitch one joke for one show when they could be running their own show is insane. The amount of creativity that's been squashed across these industries is wild. So it would be amazing if, if everybody now could take a step back and be like, oh, well, let's actually listen to people instead of either ignoring them because we, you know, don't want to hear them. I mean, this reminds me of um, one of the blurbs I appreciated was written by Christina Monlos about Cheryl Berman. And she has a quote where it was quite interesting to walk in that room and be the first woman with a bunch of guys who, you know, I don't think they even wanted me in that room. I think they felt they had to do it. Like inclusivity for the sake of inclusivity is not going to help anybody. You have to be willing to hear these other voices and opinions. And I think hopefully that is like one of the healthier, amazing benefits and side effects from from all of this nonsense that we've had to drag out into the world. But there are still the, these assumptions like, you know, mm. a, a woman who starts an agency, a lot of people will say, oh, OK, well, she's going to create campaigns that are targeted to other women. Yep. You know, and the same yeah. with minorities. There are Hispanic agencies. There are African-American agencies agencies. And it's just kind of, it's, um, it's really frustrating for people I know because they're told, oh, you can't target mass market campaigns, Mm -hmm. you know, which is ridiculous. Yeah. They, they, you know, not to make an entertainment, you know, continue the entertainment parallel, but I think that's why Black Panther was such a fascinating uh, Hollywood moment uh, to have this massively successful thing that I think a lot of people had seen as a niche, you know, kind of, oh, you know, black people will enjoy a black superhero. And it turns out everyone enjoys it because it's amazing. Uh, and same with Wonder Woman, which wasn't quite as good as Black Panther, but still, you know, <laughs> it's one where I think they thought, oh, it'll appeal to women. Okay, uh, let's just enjoy movies for what they are. We're not the Oscars or anyone voting <laughs> the quality of movies i thought they were both good i haven't seen black panther still i need to what i no i know i know i know i know uh (laughs) it takes me a lot longer to see action movies i've seen paddington 2 does anyone want to talk about that (laughs) right well we are out of time <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to check out uh, our stories in this week's issue. They're on adweek.com. They're right on the cover of this week's issue uh, in print. So take a look for those. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. I know we made you talk a lot today, but uh, <laughs> that's you, uh, okay, David. Appreciate, appreciate you it. Ma- making uh, time to kind of help us parse all this. And uh, yeah, keep an eye on adweek.com for all this news. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was produced by Anya Fernando. Thank you, Anya. Please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally. They also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Bye. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.